That's such a wonderful, wonderful song, isn't it? Um, if that were true of all of us indeed, how much easier it would be for us to follow the example that we have in our text this morning. So we look at the joy of Christian contentment. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Philippians 4, verse 10. The Bible says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Our Lord, it is our desire that you would be our vision, that you would be the treasure in our heart, the joy in our heart, that we could say that in any and all circumstances, we are content because we belong to you and you belong to us. Help us this morning to have joy in the midst of whatever circumstance we face. Because we are those who are under your grace. Give us this strength this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book that some of you have studied. Many of you in fact have probably. Entitled, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's actually right there on the front row uh, as we speak. That is a fitting title indeed, isn't it? The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's a fitting title for a number of reasons, but specifically because contentment is a rare thing, isn't it? Especially in the world that we live today. It is perhaps true that we live in the most discontent society in the history of the world. In spite of the fact that we are the most prosperous society in the history of the world. We have so much, and yet we are not content. Contentment is a word that means to be satisfied, to feel as though we have enough, and to truly believe that. And it is difficult to attain in a society that does everything that it can to make us discontent. Everything in our culture tempts us with covetousness and a lack of contentment. You, you can't go anywhere. You can't watch anything without being bombarded with advertisements, which the entire purpose, of course, is to make you discontent so that you will purchase their product, whatever it is they're trying to sell you. And the Bible speaks, though, to the dangers of discontentment. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, the Bible says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. Boy, there's a lot just in that opening verse, isn't there? But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that 
plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We could take nothing out of the world. Whatever treasures we may accumulate for ourselves in this life are only temporary. But those who desire to be rich plunge themselves into great ruin and destruction. Some have even wandered away from the faith in their love of these things. The Apostle Paul's companion, Demas was his name, departed him and went to Thessalonica. Why? Because he loved the present world. He loved the world. Discontentment is a dangerous sin. Which we must repent of every day. Elsewhere Paul describes discontentment like this in Colossians 3.5. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And covetousness. Which is idolatry. Now... Covetousness, the desire for more, literally means desiring to have more than one's due. Discontentment, you might say, is idolatry. You know, we go through our Old Testament study and we're following along and we study Jeroboam and we study Rehoboam and we study Abijam and we're seeing all of this idolatry and we think that's an Old Testament sin with with pillars and, and the ashram and all these things that, that they have. That's for them. But the Apostle Paul says discontentment, covetousness, is idolatry. It is to create an idol out of things and to put them ahead of Christ, to love them more than Christ. It was the sin of the rich young ruler, wasn't it? The rich young ruler who came to Jesus with an excellent question, except one thing was wrong with it. Sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you want to know what you must do? Here's what you must do. Keep the law. Keep the law and you'll have it. Well, that's great news, the rich young ruler says, because I have. You wouldn't believe what a well-behaved young ruler I am. Ever since I was a child. I mean, other parents would say, why can't you be more like this rich young fellow over here? I've kept all these things from my youth up. Really, Jesus says. That's amazing. So then you only lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. That's not a law that he's putting on us if we would follow him, is it? Of course not. But what did the rich young ruler do? How did he respond? He went away sad. Why? Because he had much wealth, much possessions. What was the point? The rich young ruler was an idolater. He hadn't kept the law. He hadn't even kept the first commandment in the law. He didn't love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He had a God before Yahweh, and it was his stuff. And he failed to see it. This is the sin of discontentment, of covetousness. And we ask the question, why is it that we're so covetous? Why do we, we struggle with discontentment so much? And I can say a couple of things about that. 
First of all, we have a real difficult, don't we, to discern the difference between wants and needs. Wants and needs. We will examine the apostle's situation in just a minute, but here is a man that if he wanted to be, would be living with great wants, but he wasn't. We have this trouble differentiating between what I really need versus what I really want. A lot of times I remember when Katie and I purchased a vehicle several years ago, I got a call like six months later and they wanted to buy that thing back from me and sell me the brand new one. And they wanted to tell me about all the bells and whistles in the new one that wasn't in the one that I had bought that was seven or eight years old or whatever. What are they trying to do? They're trying to make me discontent by telling me what I really need is not the car that they told me I needed six months ago. But it's the new car that I really need now. I need all the upgrades and all the features. Now we read 1 Timothy just a minute ago. Let's go back to it. 1 Timothy 6 verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. How many of us can say that today and be honest about it? If literally nothing more than my basic needs are met, I'll be content. But we know that's not the way that we think, is it? We have so much more than food and clothing, and yet we are not content. And even when it comes to food, we're not content with ham sandwiches, are we? We want, to use Obi's language, we want Philip Mignon. It's filet mignon. We want, we want the nice stuff, don't we? we? We don't want just clothing, we want name brand. We don't want our children wearing clothes that we get from the thrift store. We want our children wearing clothes that we buy from whatever department store, which I don't know the name of one, so I'm not going to try to make one up. We want our children wearing the nice things, don't we? We don't want our children wearing shoes they got from Walmart. We want them wearing Nikes, which, by the way, the price of Nikes is absurd. I don't know if you've paid attention to this or not. It's outrageous, but people will pay the price. That's why they sell them for that. Because we're not content with less. We want name brand things. We don't just want the vehicle that is a need that gets us from point A to point B. We want the vehicle that turns heads. We want the, we want the thing that, that really just blows us away with all of the, the features that it has. And some people will put themselves in great financial strain because they can't differentiate between wants and needs. And they'll accumulate massive amounts of debt. There are people living today who have hundreds of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. Folks, that's a sign of discontentment. Discontentment. I know people that are going to spend the rest of their life trying to get out of credit card debt because of discontentment. Now, it's important to, to make a point here that when we talk about these things, I want you to understand that at the beginning, there's nothing wrong with having things that you can afford. If you have the means and you want to purchase something, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no sin in, in having something that you are capable of affording. Jesus does not condemn having things or else... We're all condemned. Every one of us. No, it's, it's not that at all. Contentment is to be satisfied with where we are, 
with what we have, it's not to be enslaved to a covetous heart, no matter whether we are poor or whether we are rich. But people will put themselves not only in financial difficulties, but in despair and depression because they are not content with what they have. Or sometimes, even the wealthy have the insatiable desire to continue to accumulate things that they just don't have any control over. That's discontentment. That's what the apostle is talking about here, which is not something that he is experiencing. Being unable to separate wants and needs leads to this. And by the way, just as an aside, social media will ramp this up. People are living their best life now on social media, aren't they? And you uh, see all their stuff and their vacations and their car and their whatever. Boy, you want to talk about covetousness. It just breeds it, doesn't it? Be careful with that. But perhaps our, our discontentment is not even in regards to financial things or stuff. But maybe it's with our lot in life. We're not happy with where we are in the present circumstances of our lives. We're not happy with our job. We would like to change that job. We are not happy with where we live. We are not happy with our spouse. We are not happy with the place that God has brought us to. If you're like me, you're not happy with your fantasy football team and you wish you could start over again. Which it's all Chuck's fault because I didn't sign up to begin with. I'm terrible at He puts me in there because I'm an automatic win. <clears throat> We're not happy with the condition of our lives. We want to change things about our lives. And so much of our discontentment stems from this. Not necessarily wanting things, but we're just not happy with where we are. Now, I don't mean to brag on my wife, but I'm going to. Katie had an incredible event happen at work just the other day. She didn't even mean to have this conversation. Isn't that the best way things happen? Katie was at work, and I guess they were on break, and one of her coworkers was reading a book, a book that she has, that she has read before. It's a reform book. And so Katie began to comment on the book. Say, hey, I have that book. Didn't know you were, you know, you were reformed or a Christian or something like that. And the lady began to tell Katie how she grew up in Roman Catholicism and was just lived under a system of works righteousness and just lived under the burden of all of that. And so Katie just took it upon herself to begin proclaiming the gospel to this woman. Had a long conversation. And, and the lady, after the conversation was over, after Katie had presented the gospel to the lady, said something like this, and I'm paraphrasing, where were you all those years ago? I needed you in my life back then to tell me the truth. Which, well, there's a lot we could say about that. The need to tell people the truth, to open our mouths. And Katie came home from work, and, and with tears, she told me, she said, you know, I don't want to be at work. I, I want to be home. That's the desire of my, my heart. But I'm here and perhaps this is why. Because God has a purpose for me here in the lives of my coworkers. And this is not the only conversation that she has had. And, you know, she's always teaching me things like that. And the Lord has a purpose for us where we are. That is the lesson here. We, we need to remember that God is sovereign over our lives and we want to seek to glorify Him wherever we are. And this is indeed one of the greatest sources of contentment. It is to trust that our God has us exactly where He wants us to be. 
And the great wickedness of discontentment is that it tells God that we are not happy, we are not content with where you have placed us and with what you have given to us. We want more. When we find our delight in God, in Christ, it's there that we will be content. Jeremiah Burroughs writes, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirits which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me read that again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's Christian contentment. It's to be able to say, God, you are my Father, and I trust you with what you have given me and where you have put me. And I want you to notice in verse 10, that is exactly the source of Paul's contentment. The first source that we will see here of Paul's contentment. It is God's providence active in Paul's life. Look at verse 10 again. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Well, there's that theme of joy again, isn't it? I rejoiced. And not just rejoice, I mega rejoiced. I rejoiced greatly. Isn't that incredible? Here is the Apostle Paul who is rejoicing so strongly at this point. And where is he at? He's in prison. Literally and totally dependent upon the care from others to have even daily bread. He has nothing except for what people are providing him. And yet, he is rejoicing greatly. We will see as we go forward that the circumstances of his life do not dictate his joy or his contentment. He is rejoicing. And, and what is the motivation of his rejoicing here? Well, it is the primary purpose of the letter. This letter is a thankful letter. It is written to the Philippians to thank them because they had sent him a gift via the hand of Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus had risked even his life in taking that gift to the apostle Aaron and providing for him. And the apostle is thankful for it. He, he says, I'm rejoicing that you have revived your concern for me. Now he's very careful to say that there wasn't a lapse in their concern, but for whatever reason, we don't know what it is. Maybe it's poverty, as we'll see in a minute. They hadn't been able to show that concern to him in previous times, but now they are showing it again. This is not the first time. They had shown it on other occasions as well. He will mention one such time in verse 15. The Philippians were a very generous church who loved this apostle and wanted to take care of him. This in spite of the fact that they were very poor. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, which is where Philippi is. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They freely gave beyond their means, with great joy, even out of their poverty. 
Philippians were a very generous church. Very generous indeed. Let me say just by way of application here, a contented heart will be a generous heart. Someone who lives in discontentment will cling to their stuff, won't they? But ladies and gentlemen, we know what contentment is. It's a lot easier to let go and to be generous towards those who are in need. And the Philippians were certainly generous to the apostle. But even in his condition, it is this apostle who is saying here that he is satisfied. He is content with his circumstances. And why? He's very careful with what he says. He's going to make it very clear that he is, he is not content because they have given him the need, or given him this sustenance that meets his need. Rather, as he rejoices here, how does he rejoice? In the Lord. In the Lord. Paul's joy is not necessarily in what the Philippians are doing. His joy is in what the Lord is doing through the Philippians. That's so very important. The Apostle Paul, as he sits in this jail, or in this, this room, tied to a Roman soldier, who is completely unable to leave, has no freedom, he, he has no sustenance, he is not panicked, he is not worried about how he is going to have his needs met, because he knows that it is the Lord who will meet his needs. He is resting in the Lord. Now, when we talk about the Lord providing for our needs, and we talked about that two weeks ago, or we've talked about that several times, when we turn over to Matthew chapter 6, and we see Jesus telling us that our Father will, will meet our needs. He will you know, look at the lilies of the field, look at the birds of the air, and so on. The primary way in which God meets our needs is how? He, he doesn't drop manna from heaven, does He? Well, the primary way in which God meets our needs... It's through His people, isn't it? It's the same thing we saw last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when the apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction with, the com with, uh, with, with His comfort so that what? We might be able to comfort others in any affliction with the comfort with which we have received from God. God comforts us in our affliction. Why? so that we can then comfort others with the comfort which we have received from Him. God meets the needs of His people through His people. The reason why God blesses you is so that you might bless others. And so as the Apostle Paul sits here in prison, and in all of this issue, he is not worried. And the reason he is not worried is because he knows that God's providence will care for him. What is providence? Providence is God's activity through ordinary means in the lives of his people. God will providentially care for him through his saints. God will motivate them. God will work in them that which is pleasing in his sight, as we saw back in chapter 2, so that they might meet his needs. What's the practical lesson then? Paul could be content while in such a difficult situation because he trusts in God's providential activity in his life. Paul is resting in God. It makes me think to a psalm, a famous psalm. Psalm 23, which says what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Listen to Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Where does contentment come from? You see, we think contentment comes from getting that thing that we want. We're all going to learn that lesson that that's not true, aren't we? I think it was Roger, it's always Roger and I, who were having this discussion several months ago about this very thing. And we, we think about this, let's use the vehicle example, and this is actually what we were talking about. We think about this thing that we want, this vehicle that we want, and oh, we can't wait to have it. And we covet after, and we think about it all the time, and we start figuring out how we can afford the thing, and then we get it. And for a day or two, <laughs> man, it's wonderful. Look at this backup camera. But it doesn't take long, does it? Until we're tired of it. And then the new thing. There it is. There it is. I mean, am I speaking to myself here? You know what I'm talking about. The Lord blessed me with the, the truck that I drive a few years ago. And I love that thing. And, and I really was so thankful that I, that I got it. And my dad, who's in a completely different circumstance in my life, completely different situation, he's retired, he doesn't have any children in the home, so on and so forth. But he went out and spoiled himself. And he bought a brand new truck. And you want to talk about nice. And he had some, not work done on it, but he had some sort of, up, I don't remember what it was, something done to it. And last time I was up there in, in Tennessee visiting him, we had to go pick it up from the dealership. So we got over there. And we're getting ready to drive back home, and he tosses me the keys. He says, you can drive it. I'm looking at the GPS, figuring out how to get home. Not to his home, to my home. How can I get back to Atlanta without him knowing? And I mean, you want to talk about the bells and whistles. My truck's got the nice backup camera in it. His truck is somehow, I don't know, connected to Elon Musk's satellite up there somewhere. This thing has a camera that looks down at the truck. And, I mean, you could see all the way around this thing. I don't know why you need that, but, I mean, it's cool. And we're driving down the road, and, of course, I call Katie and take a picture of the inside of it and say, look what I just bought. Played a great trick on her. Scared her to death. But my truck was suddenly old news. Who needs a... 2007 Toyota Tacoma when you can have a 2023 F-150 trimmer, baby. But you know, when you get that thing that your heart desires and you drive it for a few months and it's awesome, the shine begins to come off of it, doesn't it? Whatever it is. Then the 2024 comes out. Oh, man. I thought the 2023 was nice. Now, this is not where contentment comes from. It's not with, with getting the thing that you want. It's never going to come from that because there's always going to be another thing. The Apostle Paul is content because God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He has a whole lot less than what I have as he's writing this letter. He's got a whole lot less, by the way, than any of us have as he's writing this letter. 
but he is resting in the providential care of God. And he is delighting in him. And so he is content. Now I want you to see something else about this. Contentment comes in God's providential care for us, God's presence, God's fatherly love for us. But contentment also comes through experience. It must be learned. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, Paul's statement to open verse 11 is striking. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Folks, we think we're in need. But if there was ever anybody who knew what need is, it was him as he wrote this letter. But no, it's not that I'm speaking of being in need. I don't feel like I'm in need. For he says, I have learned. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's very important here. The Apostle Paul was not converted and then poof, he's content. And the same thing as we talked about a couple weeks ago in, in that three-part series we did on anxiety. This, this kind of thing doesn't happen overnight, does it? We're not converted and then, okay, I'm just totally content with, with what I have. Twice in these verses, the Apostle Paul said that he had to learn it. Twice, he says, I have learned how to be happy and joyful and content. I have learned how not to allow the circumstances of my life to affect my joy, my peace, and my satisfaction. In fact, really, that's where contentment is really tested, isn't it? In the varying circumstances of life. The Apostle Paul learns how no matter what happens to him, to be content. It is developed over time. Folks, contentment is not something that comes natural to us. We are worldly people. We are, aren't we? Contentment is this, this wanting something that we can't have. It is ingrained within us. It, it was indeed one of the first sins of our fathers, wasn't it? And Eve is in the garden. She's surrounded by all of God's bounty. All of the garden there for her to have. And then the serpent says, how about this tree over here? The one thing that she wasn't allowed to have. And the Bible says that she looked at it. She stared at it. She saw it was desirable to the eyes. Then she took of the fruit and ate it. And then Adam, who was with her, also took of the fruit and ate it. You could say the same thing being said about Eve is said about Adam. In covetousness, they desired what God had said they could not have. They took of the fruit and they plunged the world into ruin. And ever since then, we've been exactly like that. We have been covetous. We have been discontent. It's not something that's going to come natural to us. We, we have to learn it. We have to learn how to be content the way the apostle says he had under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now he gives specific examples. Uh, he says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance 
and need. I know what it's like to have a lot. Before Paul was converted, he was a Pharisee, likely a very wealthy man. And even after he was converted, no doubt there were times of his life where he, you know, relatively had abounded. He had all of his needs met and things were, were well in his life and he had times of joy. But most of this apostle's life was spent on the other side of that coin. After his conversion anyway. Most of his life he lived in hardship and struggle. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, he's talking about the false apostles that are plaguing Corinth and he says, about them are they servants of Christ, I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. He, he doesn't want to boast about himself. But he's kind of had his hands forced here by these false apostles. He says, I've had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to fall and I am not indignant that's a life of hardship many of us we sing the song and I don't know who sang it but I can't get no satisfaction no matter how well things are going that's the motto of perhaps American culture but the apostle Paul learned in all of this to be satisfied danger, danger Danger, he says. All of this hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, beatings, ridicule and mockery, anxiety from the churches, and yet in all of that, I have learned to be content. The circumstances of my life do not determine my joy and satisfaction. Nope. I rejoice in the Lord in spite of the circumstances of my life. I have Him is what the apostle is teaching us. Now notice the other side of that. Paul speaks of contentment not only in poverty, but in abundance as well. I have learned to be content whether I'm poor or whether I'm rich. This goes back to what we were saying just a second ago. I, I think we have a struggle with understanding how a rich person would have a hard time with contentment. But in reality, it seems like the more people have, the more they want. Because exactly what we said a minute ago, nothing ever satisfies that desire for stuff. Nothing will ever do it. It will never do it. We always seem to want more. Being wealthy sometimes increases this temptation to discontentment. In another letter, he writes about this in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
the stuff that they have is not truly life. The riches of this world are uncertain. Don't fix your hopes upon that. Rather, be generous with what you have because you know that God has provided it to you and set your treasure in heaven and there fix your hope and there fix your heart and your mind. The treasure in heaven should be the rich man's focus, not the treasures of this world. Being wealthy will not make you more content, even if that's what you think. It won't. It won't. So Paul says in all of these circumstances of life, whether rich or poor, whether I'm hungry, whether I'm full, I have learned to be content. It was going through all these various aspects of his life, facing down the hardship, living in all of these different circumstances where Paul had to learn to be content. And he tells us in verse 12 that there's a secret to it. I have learned the mystery of how I can be content no matter what's happening to me. Well, what is this thing that you have learned about being content, Paul? Verse 13, it's this. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, I don't have to tell you that this is the most ripped out of context verse perhaps in the entire Bible. This along with Matthew 7, which is up there as well, and there are others. It's close. We all know this. There are athletes that have this reference tattooed on their bodies. That's not what he's talking about. I could promise you this. If I go to the gym tomorrow and I throw 500 pounds on the squat bar and I say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that I'm going to need you to visit me in the hospital shortly thereafter. It's not happening. This is not the way this verse is to be applied. He's not talking about anything like that. It's, it's really amazing how, just as a side note here, how Satan will just corrupt verse, great verses like this that have such great meaning and just turn it into fluff. Nothing. Nothing. That's not what this is about at all. What is it? It's, it's about living the Christian life. It is about how I can be content in all of these circumstances, including the one that I am in right now in this prison and then this misery and all this, how I can be joyful, how I can be content. It's not in my ability to produce it. It's in Christ working in me. It's in His strength. Folks, that's the entire Christian life. John 15. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, you will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do Nothing. Nothing. All of the Christian life, including the ability to be content with wherever God has placed us, will only come through the strength of Christ. When I say that the Apostle Paul learned to be content, it was not just experience alone that taught him contentment. You know, there is a saying that says experience is the best teacher. And if you're a sports fan, you know that no matter what sport you're looking at, usually coaches will trust a guy to play who has more experience. He might not be the most talented. He might be slow as molasses. But he knows where he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to do, which is why we keep losing games at Tennessee because they won't play our best players. Every fan base says this, by the way. 
Because coaches think experience is the best teacher. He knows where he's supposed to be, where he's supposed to go. Paul is not saying, I've learned through my experience how to be content. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. I have learned in all of my circumstances, in all of my experiences, how to lean into Christ. I've learned how to rest in Him. I've learned how to look to Him so that no matter what is happening, I can be happy and joyful and content because I have Christ. He writes in Colossians 1.29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. In Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, he's praying for the Ephesians. He wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the power that is available to you. It's immeasurable. It is the power that raised Christ, that exalted Christ to the Father's right hand. That's the power that you have available to you to live the Christian life. Paul learned how to lean into Christ, how to rely upon the strength of Christ as he faced these difficulties. He says this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak that I am strong. Paul did not learn by experience. He learned how to lean into Christ and how to rest in Him in these difficult experiences. And it's there that he found his strength. Now here's what we often do when we hear a sermon or a message or even read a Bible verse such as this. We become moralists. We say to ourselves, I'm going to go home and I'm going to try better. I'm going to be more content. I've been on the internet looking at this thing. I won't. I'm going to stop doing that, you know. Put it away. Don't really need it anyway. I'm going to be content. And we think that's somehow going to help us live the Christian life. And we start creating these steps to take to help us achieve that goal of getting there. Good luck with that. It's not going to work for you, is it? The only way to achieve the type of contentment that we see in this text is by Christ continuing to renew our hearts and minds. It's only in Him, folks. Burroughs again says, quote, A Christian finds satisfaction in every circumstance by getting strength from another, by going out of himself to Christ, by his faith acting upon Christ and bringing the strength of Jesus Christ into his own soul. He is thereby enabled to bear whatever God lays on him by the strength that he finds from Jesus Christ. There is a strength in Christ not only to sanctify and save us, but strength to support us under all our burdens and afflictions. And Christ expects that when we are under any burden, we should act our faith upon him to draw virtue and strength from him. End quote. That's the way to live the Christian life. That's it. We can go back to chapter 2, can't we? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you. Both to will and to do for His good pleasure. If I am struggling with contentment, it's not going to be found in what I 
don't have or what I want. Contentment's not going to be found in trying to be more disciplined, have more rigorous discipline in my life. Contentment isn't going to be found in those things. Contentment is going to be found by continually fixing my eyes upon Christ and by faith taking his strength unto myself. And I can do it. It's having eyes firmly fixed upon our Lord who by his Spirit continues to work within us until that day in which he brings it to completion. Philippians 1.6 in Christ this is Christian contentment folks it's, it's so important that we understand this and we want to be content don't we let me give you a few reasons for this why is contentment so important let's get the one out of the way obviously it's commanded in the scripture we read it in Hebrews 13.5 didn't we be content with what you have but really contentment first of all glorifies God the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Contentment enables us to do that, doesn't it? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Contentment is a faith expression that we believe that everything that we have has been given to us from God and has a good purpose behind it and we are thankful whatever it is. Contentment is an expression of gratitude to God for all that He has done for us, all that He has given to us, and where He has brought us, even if it's tough. Because even if it's difficult, God has a purpose for me there. Contentment reveals that we are satisfied in Him. And it glorifies Him in that. Secondly, Christian contentment also stands out in the midst of a discontented world. This is a world that is always striving, it seems. Always wants more. I mean, you can get on your phone and you can Google later how to get rich quick. Let me know how many articles come up that answer that question. People are striving for something and they're, they're trying to achieve something. They want a promotion at work, or they want to accumulate, whatever it is. This is a discontented world, and when we are a contented people in the midst of them, you want to talk about something that stands out. Something that stands out. I remember just being a boy. We were at church one night. I was, I don't know, very young. I take that back. I wasn't that young. I had to be at least 16. And we were at church, and one of the guys in, in the church showed up in his Corvette that he had just got. And it wasn't one of these newer Corvettes. It was, a, it was an old Corvette. I don't remember the year, so I'm not going to make it up. Boy, it was pretty. And uh, for whatever reason, he let me drive it. So he's in the car with me, and, and we're driving his Corvette down the road. And I'm terrified driving this thing, because I do not want to get a scratch on it. And I looked over at him, and... Probably should have kept my eyes on the road, but I looked over at him and I said, I can't believe you're letting me drive this car. This is amazing. And this fellow looked at me and said, why, it's just a car. Just a car. It literally is a pile of metal. It means nothing. To him, it meant nothing. He had it, it was fun, whatever, just a car. He didn't care to let a 
16 or maybe even 15, I don't know, however old I was at the time. Drive that thing around. A contentment like that, I have remembered that for all these years. I mean, that's been at least 22, 23 years since that happened, and I have remembered that all this time. A contented heart stands out in the midst of a world. Discontentment. Just stuff. Doesn't matter. We can really shine like lights against the backdrop of this covetous world. Now selfishly, Christian contentment contributes to our joy. Discontentment leads to a grumbling soul. Usually when we're complaining, you know why? It's because we are discontent. But a contented heart is a joyful heart. A contented heart is a heart that rejoices. This is a letter of what? Of joy. Go back to the beginning. All the way through this letter, he's talking about that one theme over and over again. It's joy. I think back to chapter 1. I rejoice because what has happened to me has furthered the gospel. I'm rejoicing. These terrible things have happened, but the gospel is being furthered. It's rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing all throughout the letter because his heart is content in Christ. If our lives are lacking joy, it may be because we have a discontented heart. But folks, we have every reason to be content. We have the care and the presence of God. We have true and lasting treasure laid up for us in heaven. And we have the strength of Christ. We have enough, don't we? Delight in Christ. Rest in Him and His promises. Trust in Him. Be thankful for all that He has given you. And in the strength of Christ, let us be content. Now I have to make one final point on this. One final thing. And it's this. If discontentment is a sin, we are without hope. This is the type of command that we read in the Bible that reveals to us our utter hopelessness of ever being right with God on the basis of His law. Usually, when we start thinking about whether we are good or bad, it's these big things. Lying, cheating, stealing. Adultery and murder. But discontentment is a sin. Discontentment is a violation of God's law. And if discontentment is a violation of God's law, something as simple as this, who can stand before God? And the answer is what? No one. Here is the utter hopelessness of being right with God on the basis of our merits. We can't even get this right. And if we have violated this, what does that mean? We are guilty of the whole thing. It's incredible, isn't it? You may be here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. You are utterly condemned before His law today and before His court. 
you have sinned against your Creator and a holy God. And there is absolutely no hope for you. Except that God has sent His Son who fully kept the law, didn't He? Satisfied the law's demands in every aspect, everything. He is the one who is perfect and righteous. He is the one who has died for us. He is the one who gives us forgiveness of our sins and a right standing before God. And it only comes through faith in Him, only through faith. Jesus offers His gospel or His salvation, excuse me, freely, right now, freely. It's yours. Come and take it. We said this on Wednesday. You cannot add a cost to it. If you add the smallest amount... You can't have it. It's free. Jesus says, come and take it. Now let me speak to the rest of us, the Christians in the room. So often we'll hear a sermon like this and a message like this, we'll think about this and, and, and we'll leave and we'll kind of go backwards, won't we? Back under the law and We'll feel so much sorrow in our hearts over our failure to live up to this standard. You are looking at someone who has been discontent a lot in his life. I have violated this command so many times. You have too, haven't you? Do not leave here despaired over your lack of contentment. So that you start thinking to yourself, there's no way God can be pleased with me. No way He can be pleased with me in my covetous heart. You know what that is? That's, that's law. That's going backwards. That is making my standing with God something about, something which I accomplish. That's not the gospel, is it? Now, we want to have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But a godly sorrow is not the type of sorrow that says, there's no way God can be pleased with me because of my covetous heart. That's, a, that's an ungodly sorrow. Let me ask you this morning. If God is pleased with you today, why is that? There's only one answer. What was that? Jesus. If God is pleased with us, it is because we are found in Christ. Let me rephrase that. If you are found in Christ, God is pleased with you. That's an indicative statement. There, there's no changing that, no altering that. God is pleased with you because the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to you. God is pleased with you forever and always. So if you want to know how to respond to a message like this, here's how you do it. Under the banner of God's grace, knowing that you are forgiven and free from the guilt of your sin, motivated by thanksgiving and love for Christ, seek then in the strength of Christ, 
to obey what he says. Knowing that his grace covers even all of your failings. When Jesus speaks of freedom, this is what he means. We are free, aren't we? We are free. Under the banner of God's grace, pursue holiness. Even in this area, in the strength of Christ, and in any and every circumstance, look to Jesus for your strength. Let's pray. Our Lord, we praise you and thank you for these things that we have seen today. And we know that we often fail. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you have become our righteousness. And that your grace has covered all of our sins. That we are forever forgiven. Forever in a right standing. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That there is no condemnation for us who are in you, Lord Jesus. That one day you will present us before the presence of God without blame. This is your work. And even when we sin, and we know that we will, even in this area, we know we will. We have an advocate. And that advocate is you. You, Lord Jesus, the righteous, who pleads our defense and forever intercedes for us so that you are able to save us to the uttermost. Save us forever. Lord, help us to rest in this. But at the same time, help us to push forward in your strength to conform ourselves to obedience. This is the calling. And so help us by your power to seek contentment, to put aside discontentment, and to live with joy. Joy that only comes from you. Peace that only comes from you. We thank you, Lord. Amen.